The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good evening, everyone. Trust you had a uh, good afternoon beating one another with the hockey sticks there. And some of you had some rest, I know that. Let's turn uh, together this evening to Psalm, to begin with, to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And then we're going to return to Matthew chapter 5. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor language, where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle of the sun, for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward." Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I just wanted to read that psalm to you to remind us of the testimony in God's word concerning the statutes, the judgments, and the law of the Lord and its value in our lives. And these would have been the psalms that would have filled the minds of the hearers of Jesus as he went up onto the mountain, as we've seen as the greater Moses, to declare God's law and interpret it. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. 
First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will, be, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. So we've, uh, we kicked off by looking at, noticing the centrality, the importance of Christ going up onto the mountain to interpret the law of God. Then we saw the importance of the character of the Christian man who is living in terms of the blessedness of the Beatitudes, seeking to live the Christian life. And then we notice that that person, that man, is going to be, by definition, salt and light in the world. If he's living in obedience to God, he's going to be salt, he is going to be light. That is in terms of God's word and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Now what follows then is we saw that Jesus, in light of what, the, what had gone before, says that in his exposition of the law here, and in his making known that we are salt and light in the world, he was not abolishing or setting aside the law of God, but was rather fulfilling it and putting it all into force that not one jot, not one stroke will pass away from his word until everything is accomplished. And if we want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, if we want to be truly God's mountain men in our generation... We have to be those who are ready to obey and teach God's law. Now, what follows then, this statement of our Lord, is a series of applications of the law of God. And he begins with uh, one of the uh, central concerns of God's word everywhere, the question of life. Life. And he deals with the commandment, you shall not murder. And he gives us its full meaning. The New Testament commentator Thomas Schreiner writes of these verses from verse 21 through 48. He says this, They reveal that Jesus is the sovereign interpreter of the law. Jesus often counters a misinterpretation of the law by his contemporaries in this section. The prohibition against murder cannot be restricted to the mere avoidance of murder. So the first, uh, uh, there are two tables of the law, of course. Uh, we often consider the first of those commandments, the first four of those commandments concerning God, and then six concerning our relationship with our fellow men. And <clears throat> It's been a tendency of people, and perhaps uh, you've even read the, the Sermon on the Mount this way, to see here in Jesus' statements, Jesus somehow correcting or reversing or somehow updating the law. This is in fact not what is going on here. And so at times they've even been called, as I mentioned before, antithetical or the antitheses. But Jesus' concern was always with people perverting the law and its meaning. And this was his great concern with dealing with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. So in Matthew 15, verse 9, Jesus says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. 
Christ want his, wanted his word, his truth, his commandments to be taught, not the commandments of men. Now notice the phrasing, the particular phrasing that Jesus uses here. He does not say, Moses said. He does not say, the law of God says, but I say to you. Or Moses said, but I say to you. He uses a rather curious phrase. He says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors or to the ancients or, of those, or to those of old. You shall not murder and so on. You have heard that it was said. Now the phrase is very important because people's understanding, largely people's understanding of the law of God was one that was mediated by the scribes and by the Pharisees. It was the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees concerning the law that people were taking to heart and it was for some of these teachings that Jesus chastised uh, the leadership of the time. They heard this teaching from the Pharisees and the scribes and it was a mediated reading And so Christ's concern is on the mountain to give his authoritative interpretation of the law. It's original meaning, it's full meaning. And so he spells out throughout the rest of this chapter the implications of his law to the believer. And I've taken some pains, I hope you've noticed over the past few sessions, to suggest that we should not have a negative attitude to the law of God. Quite the contrary. It should be something in which we rejoice, which we celebrate, which we recognize that we are no longer under its condemnation, but now by the Spirit we've been empowered to live, not as the source of life, but as the way of life in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are laboring under a resentment towards God's law, or dare I say even a hatred of God's law, now it's okay to misunderstand some of it, it's okay, okay to be bemused by some of it, it's okay to not fully appreciate the implications of all of it, but to be hostile to God's law actually says we've not come into an understanding of the gospel. Because if we do not realize that we have been made righteous in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and that the curse of the law is broken in our lives, we will always see the law as a threat to us rather than as God's gift to us. You see, the covenant, the covenant law that was given to the people of Israel, that Jesus recuts the covenant at the table of the Lord at the Last Supper when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood as he institutes the new covenant. A covenant is an agreement. It's a contract, if you will. And because when a contract or a covenant is made between God and us, it is always between the greater and the lesser. God stipulates the terms of the covenant and in that covenant, he graciously gives his law. It's a gift of grace. The law is not a, a source of, of condemnation to us now. It is a gift of grace to us. There is no covenant without law. A covenant is a binding agreement that has sanctions on either side. Why did Christ have to die, brothers? He had to die because the covenant required the death of an innocent victim. The law of that's why when Moses received the commandments, what did he also receive at the same time? The plans for the tabernacle. 
that there was sanctions for, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you will see that there were sanctions for the people of Israel's violation of the law, for sin. So God provides atonement in the sacrificial system. That's what, that was its purpose. That men could approach God through the high priest, through his offerings, through atonements, through burnt offerings and so forth, you have there instituted a system by which men in the old covenant could approach God by the provision of God. And there were sanctions to the covenant. Christ died because we are, we have, as the prophet Isaiah says, broken the eternal covenant. We are violators of his law. And the wages of sin, the Apostle Paul reminds us, is death. Hence, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that our worship leaders remind us, reminded us about this evening already was necessary because we are lawbreakers. That's the meaning of the gospel. Now, having redeemed us from all lawlessness and from the curse of the law, the new covenant that Christ makes with us is not a lawless covenant. He's now redeemed us to holiness. And so our attitude to the law, if it is one of hostility, I want to put it to you, is because we are yet to fully internalize the reality and truth of the gospel. Because if we know that we stand righteous before God in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to, according to Hebrews 8, the law has now been written on our hearts and we will rejoice in his commandments. We will celebrate his law and like David, we will be able to meditate on it day and night Fruitfully. One of the greatest of the Protestant uh, theologians was John Calvin, or Jean Calvin. And he agrees in his commentary on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says. Christ intended to teach that in all the structure of the universe, there is nothing so stable as the truth of the law, which stands firm, and that in every part. There is nothing so stable as the truth of the law, which stands firm, and that in every part. In fact, Calvin felt so strongly about this that he believed that those who slackened the law were unworthy of the church pulpit. So the notion that Christ was correcting Moses or altering the law here was certainly abhorrent to the Protestant reformers. He writes concerning verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old. This is what he said. It is wrong to reckon this a revision of the law or that Christ was wishing to lift his disciples to a higher level of perfection than Moses could achieve. This has given rise to the idea that the beginning of righteousness was once handed down in the law, but its perfection was taught in the gospel. However, Christ, in fact, had not the least intent of making any change or innovation in the precepts of the law. God there appointed once for all a right of life which he will never repent of. So let us have no more of that error that here a defect of the law is corrected by Christ. Christ is not to be made a new lawgiver, adding anything to the everlasting righteousness of his Father, but is to be given the attention of the faithful interpreter, teaching us the nature of the law, its object, and its scope. End quote. Most important theologian of the Reformation. 
We wouldn't be here, any of us, if it were not for the ministry of uh, John Calvin. I put it to you that that's true. So let's come now to Christ's particular application here of the law. What is forbidden in this law? Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. And I felt it was important that we come to some concrete specifics now uh, uh, with this perhaps simple illustration from God's law with respect to life. Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 We have it stated in the summary statement of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And then in chapter 21, verses 12 through 15, this is what we read. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. These are two sections in the law now that have to do with God's protection of life. Premeditated murder manslaughter under consideration and then cities of refuge or places of refuge where if you were accused of a crime of this nature you could go by the way Henry VIII established a number of cities of refuge in England for this uh, very purpose now the basic laws against deliberate homicide and premeditated murder are set out here and the judgment Jesus refers to in this case is the case in a local court. So when we go back to Matthew chapter 5, the context of what Jesus is saying, you will notice, is one of the Sanhedrin, uh, rather uh, of one of the council, of the, that was the Sanhedrin council, and the context is a court of law. Now, we live in a very murderous period in society, in history today. Some of you will have been following the news just last week where a 15-year-old boy wandered up to a, uh, a, 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 another boy in the street and just shot him. This is happening all the time. In fact, in my own, just beyond my own neighborhood, just around the corner, the most, um, I believe, the most deadly shooting in the history of uh, Toronto took place last year. Uh, This is increasingly common. It's not just gun crime, of course. It goes beyond that. We live in a murderous period of history where God's law is being ignored. And as Christian faith recedes, murders increase. Now, some of you here are old enough, like my uh, mother, to recall a time when if there was a murder in a given month in a particular area, it was a shock. It would be headline news for a week. Today we're so familiar with murder that we barely bat an eyelid at another shooting down at Jane and Finch. Unbelief is always always accompanied by disobedience. And in fact, the Bible makes the link between disobedience and unbelief. When we don't obey God, what we're actually expressing is our disbelief in him, our unbelief in him. In spiritual death, people are governed by demonic impulses in fulfillment of a sinful nature. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that the remedy to man's sin is the law. You can pass laws all you like, it's not going to change a man. It's not going to transform his inner nature. 
dead in sin, people are hostile to the law of God as God requires it. The gospel of grace is the remedy to man's sinfulness. Jesus is not trying to say that you can wash yourself in the law and be cleansed. One American theologian has stated it this way very helpfully. He says, God is man's only redeemer. The law is not given as man's way of salvation, but as God's way of righteousness. His law for his people, his kingdom. Where converted into a way of salvation, the law is perverted. Where the law represents the obedience of faith, there the law fulfills its God-given purpose. So we're not talking about, Jesus is not talking about saving men and saving society by passing laws. Actually, that's what our society today believes. Society today believes that salvation is by politics. And if you can regulate men, you know, 50 years ago, I recently read, 50 years ago in North America, one in 20 occupations required some kind of state license or state certificate. Now it's one in three. They're talking now about clowns needing to have a certificate to be clowns. I was hearing on the radio the other day. And Father Christmas Santa Claus and so forth, having to have, uh, be, have the whole thing being regulated. Now, men think that by regulation and by passing endless amounts of laws, they will somehow change uh, people's environment and therefore save them and transform them. Turn with me just for a moment to Galatians 5, if you have your Bibles with you, or your palm top, whatever you got there, laptop, phone, smartphone, whatever, I prefer paper myself. Galatians 5, 19 through 23. This is what St. Paul says. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So Paul lists a number there of violations of the law of God, and he says, but against these things, there is no law. This is the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Jesus manifests in his incarnate perfection his perfect obedience to God's law, and we are being conformed to the image of his son. Is that not what Paul tells us? So we're, given, we're taught in the word of God that Jesus perfectly obeyed God, fulfilled all righteousness, he obeyed God's law, and we are being conformed to the image of his son. So obviously we're not being conformed to lawlessness, are we? We're being conformed to the righteousness of Christ. And this is the purpose of the redemption of the cross. Paul tells us in Romans 8 verse 4, he says, It's in order that the law's requirements would be accomplished in us. 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, I, do, I am fully aware, of course, that some people totally misunderstand this, which is why I've just read Galatians 5 to you and say, well, yeah, that's right, brother. I walk in the Spirit now, and that's a different standard. <laughs> As though the Spirit of God is somehow communicating something different than the Word of God, than the law of God. As though God again, the Trinity, is once again divided against itself. But that's why the new covenant we've talked about in Hebrews chapter 8, Jeremiah 31, is that the Spirit of God writes this law in our hearts. So when Paul says that we walk not according to the flesh, those, that list in Galatians 5, we walk according to the Spirit, that's the Spirit who has written the law of God into our hearts. So the commandment, you shall not kill or murder, means simply this. That a person's life cannot be taken lawlessly. A person's life cannot be taken lawlessly. Life and death are on God's terms. So let's talk about what is forbidden in this particular law. This law does not prohibit legal war, as some of the Anabaptists seem to think. It doesn't say that... Uh, Jesus does not deny here the right of self-defense and war is an extension of the police powers of the state to defend its citizenry. You've got a very difficult job, as you can imagine, justifying the doctrine of pacifism from the Bible. Especially since half of God's greatest saints were men of war. And that included Abraham, by the way. You remember what Abraham did when Lot was carried off? Do you remember? He went and rescued Lot, and he took his trained men to do it. And we see that in, in the case where his relatives were stolen and their property. I don't uh, recollect any point in Scripture where God rebukes Abraham for self-defense or defense of his family. In fact, the, the law of God gives the clear right of self-defense, and God lays down rules of war in the Bible. So, it doesn't prohibit self-defense. What God does teach here is that there is only one lawful authority to punish murder with the appropriate penalty. For man to take life lawlessly, to murder our neighbor, whatever our motivation may be, even if it's personal vengeance, is an assault on God, the creator and governor of life. We cannot take a person's life. This is the surf, this is the, this is just the top reading right now, okay? This is what's explicit in this law. We cannot take life lawlessly. At the same time then, we cannot spare life where God requires death. Because where we have laws against murder, we have laws requiring God's justice to be exacted upon the murderer. To spare life where God requires it is equally impertinence and an affront to God's order. It's to arrogate to ourselves, which our, we have done in our own time, the right to give and take life as we see fit. Not as God requires of it. And that means what our state has done is that murderers can go free and unborn children are slaughtered. Because the state has said, we have the right, and in fact, not just unborn children, actually, if you've been following the press recently. It's been revealed how many children have actually been killed after their birth. Failed or botched abortions where children are being tossed into garbage bags. This is going on in our society. 
where we give murderers the highest civilian citation. We give them the Order of Canada for their promotion of murder. You know who I'm talking about? Henry Morgenthaler. The man who actually spent time in prison initially for his murders. Did you know that the man, in order to literally throw it in the face of God and of the people of this country, performed a televised abortion on Mother's Day? Did you know that? This is the kind of hatred of life that we are dealing with in our culture. So we have a culture that doesn't mind killing people. It's just who we kill. And it's not done in terms of the word of God. To put anything before God, the Bible says, is idolatry. Now Jesus wants to go beyond here what is merely explicit in this command and go on to show what is also implicit in this commandment because more is forbidden. He says, you've heard the interpreters of the law, your interpreters of the law. They've said, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But let me tell you something else, he says. I'll tell you where murder begins. Let me show you where the root of murder is. He shows in verse 22 that anger, some manuscripts have without cause, or to flagrantly insult a brother, a fellow covenant member, is subject to judgment. That God will call us to account for how we deal with anger in our lives. We cannot hate one another without incurring guilt. Now, of course, for the most part, we stop short of killing people in the church when we're angry with them. Although sometimes it feels like I can feel some daggers in my back periodically coming in from the balcony or whatever, depending on what's going on. But uh, sometimes we stop short, of course, of killing people. And people think, well, of course, I've obeyed this law. I mean, murder, of course, obviously murder is wrong. I'm not going to do that. But Jesus says that slandering somebody here can actually be as good as killing them because in one sense when we slander a person when we're angry with our brother without a cause when we when we speak against them slanderously we are destroying their reputation we can actually defraud others by what we say about them we're all guilty of this you know in the uh, in the economic crash i think it was in 2008 uh, 2008, 2009, there were men who jumped to their deaths who committed suicide because they'd been defrauded. You know that people do actually kill themselves at times when they realize they've been defrauded. They feel so hopeless, so helpless about the situation. They've lost so much money. Calvin actually says that that rule of law ties not only one's hands but our emotions that are opposed to brotherly love, God will be the judge of concealed anger to punish that offense. It's not a state penalty. Nobody's going to come and cuff you and haul you to the courthouse. But Jesus is saying there is a judgment for unrighteous anger. God will hold us to account for our attitude of heart towards our brothers, towards our covenant members in the body of Christ. How are our hearts towards one another? Even beyond the covenant community, we are to regard life, property, marriage, reputations of our neighbors as valuable in God's sight and not kill that person by our slander of them. 
Christ highlights the importance of Leviticus 19.18. Many Christians are surprised when I quote Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. This includes addressing ourselves to unrighteous anger and slander. Why? Because murder does not begin with the act of murder. When, uh, when the Paralympian, is it Pretorius? Pistorius? Uh, shot his girlfriend. I'm not, for, I'm not uh, familiar, privy to as, many, as much of the detail as the, uh, the magistrates there in South Africa are, but I find this one pretty clear. That act did not begin with his shooting, with the, with the incident of shooting, did it? Whatever caused that man who has a ton of money, a contract with Nike, a beautiful girlfriend and a great deal to live for, to blow away his girlfriend in cold blood there, it didn't begin because he woke up irritated about something that morning. Christ wants to get to the heart of murder because murder doesn't begin with the act. It begins in the heart, as the Apostle James tells us in James 1, 14 through 15. Evil desire gives birth to sin. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, we find this very interesting incident where a man named Lamech denies any sense of guilt and boasts in the number of men he's murdered. He's boasting about it. This is part of the description of the world's descent into uh, wickedness. He's boasting about his murders. He even writes a song about his murder of these men. To acknowledge guilt is actually, you see, to acknowledge God's law. When we acknowledge guilt, we are acknowledging the reality of God's law. To boast in sin is to say we have a total independence from God. Now, what is our culture doing today if not boasting in its sins? It's saying we are utterly independent from God. We are independent of his law. We are totally autonomous. We are not answerable to God. It's as though we are almost throwing it in God's face. We have a radical contempt for God. And God says, this is a mistake. We cannot get away with radical contempt for God and his law and expect that our culture will get away with it. Expect that we will not be judged for it. Personally, corporately, collectively. Christians, you see, are not dualists. We saw this in the last session. Body and mind for us are not alien substances, and Jesus is reminding us of this. There is a unity of body and mind, of thought and act, and we will act out our beliefs, our faith, our convictions in everything that we do. Lamech's thoughts and words reveal the faith that he has as much as his actions. Murder will out, the old saying goes. And this is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark Chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. For from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a person. So Jesus says it's not just the outward acts. It's not simply 
Don't take somebody else's life. It's what is going on in the heart, in our hearts and in our minds towards others. James says something very similar in James 4 verses 1 through 12 about the source of wars and fights and murders, he says. What's the source of these? He points again to evil desire to the heart. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, he says. Thus, the idea that lawless hatred and anger will not finally lead to greater sin, Jesus says, is naive. So what are we being warned against in this law, in this Jesus' application of the law here? He's trying to tell us that, he is telling us in his exposition of the law, that it's naive of us to think that if we allow unrighteous anger, godless anger, to fester in our lives, that it will not lead to further sin. And if we, if we think that we are not susceptible to the sins of other men as we see them committing them in our society, we're mistaken. That is why we must put a check, we must check these things in our lives before they lead to greater evils. Pornographic addictions, for example, can lead, if unchecked, to further sin, sexual license, even sexual violence and criminality. Sex offenders in prisons today almost invariably began with serious addictions to hardcore pornography. If left unchecked, if we leave it undealt with in our lives, it will lead and can lead to further sin. The Lord knows that we need our passions governed. Jesus says in whatever area of life this exists, we must deal with it so that it doesn't lead us further down the track to worse sin. Sin is progressive. There is a progress in these things in our lives. Evil desire gives birth to sin. So that's the the negative element of the commandment. You shall not murder. But there is a positive aspect to all of this that is critically important. The law doesn't just forbid homicide and unrighteous anger. It inescapably requires us, by definition, to apprehend the murderer and seek justice and to cultivate right attitudes of life. It wants us... This command requires of us to not just not kill, but to make alive. This is the positive aspect of the commandment. It's not just a negative sanction. There's a positive implied requirement here. A doctor does not simply seek to stop infection, but further our health and our healing, to further life. When you go to the doctors, you're not just trying to fix an isolated problem. You are trying to further your health. A few years ago, I remember vividly Harold Shipman. Do you remember Harold Shipman in the United Kingdom? The UK's worst known serial killer, over 100 people we know about. He was a doctor. A doctor. He essentially put down, euthanized the elderly and the infirm under the guise of caring for them. Not only did he violate this command do not murder, he denied its concomitant requirement positively to make alive, to pursue healing, health, and life 
in people's lives. So it's not enough for us to say, well, I've got this commandment covered. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a murderer and, and I, I, keep, I, I keep a lid on my anger. I'm doing pretty well. Actually, what God wants, us, wants of us, what Christ wants of us, is to further life. Murder thus takes various forms by implications, or what we might call the spirit of murder. The spirit of murder isn't just the act of murder. Adam Clark, a commentator, includes these things in the spirit of murder. First, superstitious fastings and self-mutilation. The willful neglect of health to destroy or shorten life. That's a very interesting thing. Uh, young people, where there is a serious problem, especially among girls today, of cutting, which can often lead to more, even more serious problems, is a manifestation of the spirit of murder. The suicidal tendencies that dominate our culture. So Adam Clark says, willful suicide, auto-homicide. Is part of the spirit of murder. Where does it come from? It's demonic. It's at work in the world. It wants to destroy life. What does Jesus say about the work of the devil? He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So Christ he says that in John 10 verse 10, he says, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. That's why he's come. That by being obedient to him, we will know life in its total fullness as we obey his word and walk the paths of life, which is the paths of righteousness, of justice. Then that's the purpose of God's law. The purpose, you see, of God's law as a gift of grace is that you and I might know fullness of life, total life in every aspect of our being. That's what God wants for you and me. That's why he demands we obey him. Not because he's trying to spoil our fun. Not because he's a bit of a killjoy. But because he wants us, as his people, to know fullness of life. Satan, on the other hand, who is antithetical to the work of Christ, who is light and life, when we turn away from Christ, we move always in the direction, therefore, of death and darkness. Because his purpose is only to kill to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his work. So if you want to identify something in our culture and where it comes from, what its source is, ask if it's furthering life. To willfully neglect our health, superstitious forms of fasting and mutilation and cutting, and then Adam Clark adds, those addicted to drunkenness, sloth, gluttony, to degrade and shorten life are violating this command. So actually, when you look at our culture, we are in the grip, if you will, of a murderous spirit. I was reading a few weeks ago that binge drinking is now epidemic in Canada. It's been epidemic for a long time in the UK. The last I recall, uh, something like 40% of people in the UK engage in binge drinking on a weekend. This is now a serious growing problem here in Canada. It's a serious threat to life, to health, to road safety, and the inability, increasing inability of our healthcare to manage the problem. 
And Adam Clark adds one more, a man of furious passions without control of his temper. This is what Jesus is getting at in this commandment. So, if we abuse our bodies to destroy our health, contrary to God's will for us, uh, we are actually violating this commandment. Our bodies are a temple, the Bible says, of the Holy Spirit. So we're to respect our bodies. Our bodies matter. We shouldn't abuse our bodies. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy a drink. In fact, uh, if evidence shows that uh, out of studies out of Europe that a glass of wine a day for men in particular, an alcoholic drink a day is actually very good for your health. But don't go beyond that. If we neglect ourselves in that we don't ever take exercise, we're actually shortening life. It's not good. Paul says physical exercise is of some value. So we should uh, take exercise. There are interesting things that we could go on to discuss here. I haven't got time to talk about all of them. But we shouldn't be abusing our bodies, cutting our bodies, violating our bodies. I'll touch on the issue of marking our bodies uh, in the Q&A time. It's amazing to me today how many people, if you are on the beach or go to the swimming baths, how many people now mark their bodies. Men are covered in tattoos today. Covered in them. Now, I'm not, uh, you may well have a tattoo. I'm not condemning you for having a tattoo. I am saying that in Scripture, tattoos did have a religious significance. That's why the Old Testament talks about them. And we're now in a pagan culture that's obsessed with marking itself. We must be careful that we do not mutilate God's temple and mark it permanently for a fashion statement. I'm hearing quietness. Let's make sure Christ wants us to be free. He doesn't say anything for no reason. We must be sure that we are honoring God in all of these things. Not about religious legalism, not about making up rules for one another. This happens to be one of the things that is mentioned in Scripture as a pagan practice. And as we've sunk into paganism, the mass marking of people's bodies has become very, very popular. Men and women. Amazing the number of women who scar their bodies now today through tattoos. It used to be a thing where your grandfather's generation, my grandfather's generation, he was in the Navy, he had an anchor on his uh, forearm. You understood that, right? There's an anchor on his forearm. Okay, he was in the Navy for 30 years, whatever. But today, it's like the David Beckham thing. Let's just cover ourselves in tattoos. Why? What's the purpose? Let's move off that one. If we make war on God's law in our lives, personally, corporately, as a nation, we make war on life. This is the point. We read in Proverbs, wisdom, Christ as wisdom speaking. Those who sin against me wrong their own souls. All those who hate me love death. Proverbs 8.36, I think. We don't, if we make war on God, we are not furthering life, we are furthering death. And Christ came to give us life and to tell us sin shall not have dominion over us. What this speaks to, what God's word, what God's law always speaks to, is that you and I have been born into a world, brothers, of total meaning. Total meaning. We think, we tend to think that, well, 
this area of my life's my own and God won't notice that. Maybe he's not so interested in that and he's not really interested in this and this and this, but he is interested in my devotions and you know, whether I'm being nice to my wife and kids. But pretty much these other areas, God has nothing really to say. Nonsense. Jesus said this, he says, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without my father. That's a universe of total mean. The hairs on your head are numbered. God doesn't need to count very high for some of you. (laughs) They're all numbered. Why did Jesus tell us that? And the psalmist says, before a word is on our tongue, he knows it completely. Now, I'm not making this stuff up. You recognize these quotations, right? This is all in the Bible. What we are told in Scripture is that this is a world of total meaning. There is nothing in your life or that happens in your life that is meaningless. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think has a meaning. That's why one of the Ten Commandments is, to some people it seems like a wasted one. You shall not covet. What's covet? You don't see when a man is coveting, do you? I mean, when he finally gets around to stealing something, you, you see the manifestation of it, but you don't see coveting. Coveting is something that goes on in the heart. God is concerned in this world with the total meaning of our lives. And he wants us to walk in that meaning, in total joy and fulfillment, in God, in the blessedness of the Beatitudes. To be satisfied as God is satisfied. So when we think, well, why would God, why on earth would he be bothered about my haircut, my, whether I've got tattoos, what, the, this, that, or the other? Why, what, what's with all the detail? Some people read the book of Leviticus. I have often said this to my own congregation. And they're bored senseless. Because they think, what's with all the detail about the temple? You know what we usually say? You know, there's an expression we have, isn't there? The, the devil is in the details. Do we say that in Canada? Actually, the devil isn't it. God is in the details. That's why all the detail is there. Because the detail matters to God. Even the things that only one man, one priest saw once a year. The detail mattered to God. The detail of your life matters to him. This is a world of total meaning. Every fiber of life has meaning. Every flower is under God's total government. Because Jesus says God clothes them. There is a way of life then, or death, and we either grow in life by degrees, or we grow in the principle of death by degrees. And God wants us to work with him to serve him in making alive. This is what Deuteronomy 32.9 says. See now that I alone am he, there is no God but me, I bring death and I give life, I wound and I heal. So God's command not to murder or cultivate unrighteous anger and slander requires us to move in terms of the laws of life. And the church is a ministry of life to the world. We are the ministry of reconciliation. We are a priesthood. 
I don't care if you're a butcher, a banker, a baker, a candlestick maker, you are a priest under God, and you are therefore a minister, a mediator of life to the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible even says that the church has authority to declare forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus, to declare absolution. Matthew 18:18, 18, 18, John 16:19, John uh, sorry, Matthew 16:19, John 20:23. 20, there is a delegated authority given to the church to be a ministry of life in the world. What does this mean then? Let me summarize a few things quickly for you. It means the protection of innocent life of the unborn, of children at risk. It means a duty to widows and orphans, Exodus 22, 22 through 24. It means a duty to pursue justice in the courts, Deuteronomy 24, 17. It means a duty to watch against oppressors, Deuteronomy 27, 19. It means to be mindful of the life and property of, property of others, Leviticus 19, 13. It means not to bear grudges or seek personal vengeance, but to love our neighbor, Leviticus 19.18, it means to care for the poor and make provision for those who have fallen into debt amongst the covenant people and to help them, Leviticus 25.35. It means to punish crime and not sponsor idleness, the entire book of Proverbs. It means to respect and steward, not rape the creation, Leviticus 22.28. Leviticus 28 through 11, Deuteronomy 25, 4. It means to make alive in Christ's name and extend it to all of these areas of life. Godly work brings life, not death. Now, of course, men counterfeit this today. We have counterfeit versions of what God requires. We call it socialism and liberationism and statism, and their help brings death. You know, the Bible says very interestingly that the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Proverbs 12, verse 10. The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. When men try to solve and deal with the issue of life and death on their own terms outside of the word of God, it just leads to cruelty and death. What was the communist revolution meant to be? It was meant to be the great salvation, the great utopia for man. 40 million people murdered. That's man, that's the tender mercies of the wicked in trying to save man by politics. Jesus tells us that adherence to his law ministers life as the way of righteousness and he makes alive. And we will hear the cry of the needy in all of these areas if we obey his law. You know, it was, uh, I think it was last year when I read in the paper in my local area that a woman in our neighborhood, uh, a couple of blocks north, had died on her own driveway the night before or the day before because she had uh, she was an elderly lady got distressed forgot where she was probably uh, suffering with some form of dementia her screams and cries for help in the freezing cold could be heard and were heard by the neighbors and she was found dead frozen like a board in the morning on her own driveway 
And you know the reason people gave? Well, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't want to interfere. It might have been something going on that, you know, was a police matter. God calls on us to render aid, to actually care about these things, to care about people. And you know, if we would actually do some of these things, we've talked about what we're trying to do with safe families. People would once again look at the church and say, look how these people love one another. Not only that, they love us as well in a way that the, the pagans don't. They care for us, they're concerned for us in the way the pagans aren't. Jesus not only says this, he adds, and I'm closing now, he adds that if we have given cause for offense to a brother in verses 23 through 24, he gives us some practical advice. If in our anger we've sinned, he says, make restitution, be reconciled. If you want to approach God faithfully, if you want to bring your gift, if you want to approach the table of the Lord, go and be reconciled to your brother first. Do you know, we've forgotten how serious God's sanctions are with respect to this. What does the apostle Paul say about even coming to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner? He says, some of you have died because you dishonored the table of the Lord, the covenant meal. That's the sanctions that are associated with God's, God's covenant law that is ratified in Jesus Christ. He says, you cannot come to the table in an unworthy manner and eat and drink judgment on yourself and those with whom you partake. You know, today in many churches, it's like the communion's being tossed around, you know. Yeah. I've seen this. People meandering around. I've been in churches where there's been known adultery and the partners are there with their new adulterous partner and they're all taking communion. This is into eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves and upon the body of Christ. That's the sanction of God's law because God's law is the way of life. And he wants to further life through our faithfulness to his word. So Jesus says, if you've got a dispute with your, go put it right. Be reconciled. Not only so, even if you've got a falling out with your enemy, take my advice as the Lord and it's practical. People never think Jesus is practical. He's very practical here. He says, before you end up in a debtor's prison, why don't you come to terms? Come to terms. Otherwise, that was the practice in those days. There were debtor's prisons. Before they instigate legal action and do it by force, if you're guilty, I mean, obviously, if you're not guilty, then go to the courts. That's what they're there for. But if you're guilty, put it right swiftly. It means, therefore, not to slander, not to defraud, but to be reconciled to our brothers. Calvin says, we have only satisfied the law's commandment, which forbids killing when we promote agreement and brotherly kindness, whatever we offer to God is faulty if we are not in concord with our brothers, at least to the best of our means. God does not welcome or recognize as his children those who refuse to be brothers with their fellow men. Christ then takes us to the root of this evil by saying hatred, unrighteous anger, quarrels, injuries proceed from a murderous spirit. Better to settle for a loss than promote evil. Be reconciled. Make restitution. Leave your tithes at the altar and go and put things right before the Lord first if we would be acceptable to God. 
Others know we have not. Others of us uh, uh, have perhaps recognized that uh, even this evening perhaps that while we may be obeying the explicit elements of this commandment, maybe we're actually finding ourselves in disobedience to some of it, with our, even with our own brothers in the life of the church. Let's think about that. This, this is a weekend retreat. This is an opportunity for us to also examine ourselves and say, Lord, is there things here? Is there something here that you want me to be aware of? You want me to get prayer about? You want me to be challenged by? Because there's some form of murderous grip on my life, a spirit that has got a hold of me, that I don't want to overtake me. What is it that, Jesus, uh, that God says to uh, Cain? When Cain brings an offering that has not been required of him, God says to him, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you, Cain, but you must master it. Don't let it overtake you. And we're promised that in temptation, in our struggles, there's a way of escape. There's always help. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He's able to empathize and sympathize with all of our weaknesses because he was tested in all points just as we are yet without sin. So we have a high priest who's able to minister forgiveness and atonement to us so we are not men who carry around guilt. Guilty men are weak men. That's why our culture wants to make you guilty today, to tell you you're a homophobe, you're intolerant, you're a bigot, you're a white supremacist, you're a colonial murderer. You're a, you're, you, as a Christian, you're, you're committing cultural genocide when you send uh, missionaries to other parts of the world and so on. Because, and we're told endlessly, we're guilty, we're guilty, we're guilty. Why? It makes us weak. If you know you're guilty in your marriage of something, in your dealings with your wife, you're aware of it and you haven't dealt with it, how does that enable you to deal with the other issues that then crop up in marriage? Do you feel like you have the moral authority to speak into other areas when you're actually carrying guilt about something you've got undealt with, uh, that you've not dealt with? No, we don't. If we've got, we're struggling with addictions to various things, how do we feel? We feel guilty, we feel unworthy, we feel powerless. And then we feel like we are unable to fulfill our calling as men. So we have to come to our great high priest who deals with guilt and frees us, liberates us to live in terms of the law of liberty. Guilt is put away. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ for the law of the spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death so that we're not in the grip of a spirit that the enemy wants to put on us to steal, kill, and destroy, but we are in the grip of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've got a bad temper. Maybe you've been struggling with indolence and sloth. Maybe you've been struggling with pornography. Maybe there's been an abortion somewhere in your background. Maybe you've even had suicidal inclinations. Maybe there's been alcohol abuse there. Maybe you've been a victim of crime and there's hatred and resentment. I don't know. It could be anything. Well, this weekend, we actually have an opportunity, don't we, as we come before God and as brothers together to deal with those things so that we can walk and move now in the life that God has for us, to be men who further life in every aspect of our lives. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who fulfilled your word fulfilled your law perfectly who calls us to be men not of a murderous spirit or a spirit of unrighteous anger 
but those who are controlled by the person of the Holy Spirit. Against this there is no law. Give us, Lord, the grace by your Spirit to live as men who further life and truth and righteousness in every aspect of our being. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.